0: Good morning, Highland Church family. Let's open up in a word of prayer as we get ready to dive into God's word today. Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to open up your word and hear from you. As we live in a world where there's so much instability and uncertainty, we're so grateful that we have your word to ground us and to guide us. So as we dive into 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 today, I pray that you speak to us, that you show us how this verse applies to our lives, and that this verse can give us clarity for how we can live a Christ-centered life in the midst of our culture and the ins and outs of everyday life this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we look back throughout history, we oftentimes see a principle emerging Overconfidence can oftentimes lead to major failure. History is brimming with stories that warn us to guard against the common temptation to be overconfident in our knowledge, in our strength, and in our abilities. You know, a couple examples, for instance, I think of Napoleon's disastrous decision to invade Russia with an army of 600,000 men during the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon wrongly believed that the invasion would take 20 days and they would be in and out. Instead, the invasion lasted over five months and his men were underfed and they were under-equipped for the harsh Russian winters. All told in the end, Napoleon lost 380,000 men with another 100,000 being taken into captivity by the time he retreated to France. His army never recuperated from that devastating loss. You know, I think of the infamous example of the sinking of the Titanic. The builders of the Titanic were overconfident in the ship's ability to safely navigate any potential dangers. Uh, Legend has it that the vice president of the company, when he first heard the reports that the Titanic was in danger, he glibly replied, we place absolute confidence in the Titanic. We believe that the boat is unsinkable. And that belief led to many of the safety precautions being foregone to the detriment of many lives. And don't we know this principle to be true experientially as well? You know, I was thinking of a few months ago when a Highland attender found out that I really enjoy playing racquetball, so he invited me to a game at the Y with him. Now, he told me that he hadn't played for a few years, and to put it politely, I probably have four decades on this particular individual, so I walked into this this game pretty confident in my abilities. I was humbled that day. I left with no self-confidence because I think the most I ever scored was five points against him. It was an absolute catastrophic failure. And you know, there are countless more historical examples of this important lesson. Overconfidence oftentimes leads to major failures, but that principle is not just true militarily or economically or athletically. That principle is also true spiritually as well. In fact, that's the point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where he says, therefore, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. There were a lot of Christ followers at Corinth that were wrongly overconfident in their spiritual maturity, their spiritual wisdom, their spiritual liberties, and most dangerously, their innate ability to overcome temptation. And Paul is giving a warning shot to these people. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, where Paul walks through a survey of Old Testament characters who were similarly overconfident, and they ended up in major spiritual failure. Through these examples, Paul is warning the Corinthian believers, and by extension, us, don't think that moral failure is beyond the realm of possibility. Don't underestimate the strength of our spiritual enemy. Never miscalculate the seductive nature of sin. However, Paul doesn't want us to be overwhelmed by the power of temptation either. In verse 13, he says, Just don't be overconfident in your own strength, but instead depend on the strength of the Lord. In verse 13, Paul reminds us that victory over temptation is possible, but only when we follow God's clear guidelines for how to overcome it. So, with that background in mind, let's go ahead and look at our verse for this morning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, as we look at these verses, the single theme is pretty obvious. It's the theme of temptation. And after a lot of rebuke, Paul is coming in with a word of hope and encouragement to the Corinthian believers in their battle for Christ-like living. If we were to summarize the big idea of this verse to one phrase, I think this is what Paul is saying. Here's our big idea for the morning. Temptation is formidable, but it's not irresistible. Temptation is formidable, but not irresistible. In verses 12 and 13, Paul's highlighting the two sides of the same coin of temptation. In verse 12, he says, hey, don't kid yourselves. Temptation is a formidable foe. That word formidable means it's something that is frightening and powerful and really to be a little bit aware of because victory is not guaranteed or easy. But on the other side, Paul also says in verse 13, but temptation is not irresistible. There's no temptation that's so powerful that we have to indulge it. We can triumph over temptation. What an encouraging and powerful truth. And in this verse, God gives us his foolproof plan for how we can triumph over temptation in our lives. And this morning, we're gonna see three principles for how we can triumph over temptation. Here's our first principle. Principle number one this morning from this text. We need to begin by understanding the nature of temptation. We need to understand the nature of temptation. You know, notice the illuminating words that Paul uses to describe temptation in this verse. He says, temptation wants to overtake us. The word overtake carries the idea of firmly grasping or seizing something, taking one into captivity. He says, temptation seeks to take our heart captive to a particular sin. And that should be a major word of warning for us about temptation because a lot of the time we can believe the lie that I can give in and indulge this temptation one time without it turning into a long-term problem. We think I can lie to my spouse just this once to to prevent another another blow up. We think, you know, I can indulge these sexually explicit materials just this once without it turning into a long-term habit. We think, you know, I can drink with the purpose of getting drunk just this once because it's been a really bad week. We think, you know, maybe I can smoke pot with my friends just this once, but it's not going to turn into a long-term habit. It's just a one-time event for me. Temptation whispers to us that you can indulge sin and still remain in control. However, this verse reminds us that temptation always has its sights set on long-term captivity. And if that's true, then we need to be vigilant for the surprise attack of the enemy. We need to be on guard against the lurking temptations around us. And though it's not explicit in this text, I think it's important from the rest of Scripture to identify what are some of the most common sources of temptation. And I think there's at least four. There's probably way more, but four that we see in Scripture. Here's, here's the first com- the first most common source of temptation, the remnant of our fallen flesh residing within us. I mean, just consider what James writes in chapter one of his epistle. He says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The greatest source for temptation for all of us is right here. It's our own hearts. It's our own fallen flesh. Yes, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are new creations in Christ. The oldest past all has become new. But this side of eternity, we still have a fallen flesh that resides within us. Our hearts are still drawn towards sin and rebellion and idolatry. And the greatest barrier to our sanctification does not lie outside of us. It dwells within us. Every day there's a fight for our affections. Will we follow the new godly desires of the spirit or will we give into and indulge the old sinful desires of the flesh? And you know, I think that's so important for us to keep in mind because we can get really good at playing the blame game for our sin. Satan made me sin. These other people in my life made me sin. My circumstances left me no choice but to sin. Now, all of those things can certainly coax us towards sin, but the fault is ours. We sin because we want to sin. No one twists our arm and forces us to sin. We sin when we desire to. So many, many times we need to simply repent of making excuses for our sin and take ownership of falling short of God's standard. In addition to that, there is also Satan, the the tempter and his assistant tempters who allure us to sin. We face a very real spiritual enemy. Spiritual warfare is not something that is trivial or to uh, be mocked. Spiritual warfare is very real. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul actually nicknames Satan the tempter. Satan and his legion of fallen angels love to find a weak spot in our spiritual armor and shoot a flaming arrow right at it, a flaming arrow of temptation right at that weak spot. If we struggle with pride when somebody else succeeds, Satan likes to whisper in our ear, You're so much better than they are. Why didn't you get chosen? They they aren't treating you fairly. You're taken for granted. You deserve to be angry. If we struggle with bitterness, Satan loves to bring that hurtful memory back to our minds and replay it over and over and over again. If we struggle with purity, Satan whispers to us, no one knows what you're looking at. No one's gonna see it just clear your browser history. It's a a secret sin. No one's going to find out and everybody does it anyway. If we struggle with materialism, Satan loves to find ways to show us all the things that we don't have. And as he flashes those billboards before our eyes, he excitedly waits to see us growing increasingly dissatisfied with the things that God has given us. Though Satan never forces us to sin, he certainly enjoys the opportunity to coax us into sin and to turn our backs on Christ. Here's another source of temptation as well. Other sinful people can sometimes encourage us towards sin. You know, peer pressure to compromise and give in to temptation is huge. I'm regularly surprised at how many Christian young people can think that they can surround themselves with unchristian, ungodly influences and place themselves in very ungodly environments and think that they're not gonna compromise on their faith and give in to sin the draw to fit in the draw to not be viewed as weird or religious or legalistic it can be very real for all of us and we need to wisely guard what company we are keeping most i think of what paul says in first corinthians fifteen thirty-three. he says don't don't be deceived bad company will ruin good morals so other sinful people can tempt us to sin but a fourth and final source of temptation are trials." Our trials, our circumstances can certainly tempt us to respond with sinful affections and actions. The death of a loved one can tempt us to be angry with God. The loss of a job can tempt us to feel anxious and start asking all the what ifs. What if I don't get another job? What if I have to give up X, Y, or Z? What if I can't make this payment? A global pandemic that's taken away many amenities and comforts that we enjoy Contempt us to respond with complaining and grumbling and self pity. These are all sources of temptation that we need to regularly be guarding against. Part of the battle is learning to be able to spot the enemy at a distance so it can't sneak up on us and have a surprise attack. But there's one thing else that we still need to understand about temptation, and it's this: we need to understand the limitations of temptation. And in this verse, Paul gives us some limitations of what temptation can and cannot do. And here's here's the first one. No temptation is unprecedented. No temptation is unprecedented. Paul reminds us that no temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to humanity, meaning that I am not the first nor the last person who's going to struggle with this particular temptation. And you know, for me, that is an encouraging truth because how many of us have believed the lie at one point that there's no other Christian who could possibly struggle with the temptation that I'm struggling with? If I was really a Christian, I couldn't be struggling with X, Y, or Z. I'm alone and isolated in my struggle. And this passage reminds us, don't believe the lie that you're alone. Don't believe the lie that nobody else could understand. Don't believe the lie that you are on your own in your battle with temptation. Second, we see that no temptation is beyond indulging. You know, there, there are many, many Christ followers who have suffered a major moral failure because they didn't believe this point. They, they believed that they were beyond indulging a certain sin. And we need to remember that we are all just one wrong decision away from indulging a sin that we never thought possible. When we become arrogant and think that we've graduated from grace, we leave ourselves open for attack from the enemy. We need to have a healthy skepticism of our own fallen flesh. We should never think to ourselves, that could never be me. Instead, we need to think to ourselves, by God's grace, if I keep trusting in him, he will not allow that to be me. Those are very different postures. We need to never discount the power of temptation to sneak into our hearts and frightening ways. Third, no temptation is irresistible. No temptation is irresistible. I love this limitation of temptation. Yes, temptation is formidable. However, it's not irresistible there is no temptation that we will face that God will not empower us to overcome. And that is a huge hope infusing promise. However, it doesn't help us if we don't believe it. It doesn't help us if we don't believe it. And this morning, I imagine there's a lot of you out there. There's many people who are listening to this sermon that believe that their particular temptation is irresistible. As you think about a besetting sin in your life, you feel despondent and hopeless. And deep down, you don't believe that victory over your particular sin struggle is possible. There's a temptation that's so overtaking your heart, it feels like it's ingrained into your identity and you think, I will never be free. You're sitting out there hurting because this verse doesn't really feel like a hope-infusing promise. It just feels like it's reminding you of your failure. And you know, if that's you today, I want you to walk away from this time this morning with a newfound hope. I'm not here to beat you up with the moral law and make you feel even worse about your sin because that's not going to help you. I want to do something different. Let me explain. Let me give you a a picture for this. Imagine that we're at my house and I am vacuuming the large uh, rug that covers our family room. I'm vacuuming the rug because let's say that we had, Megan and I hosted a group from G180 the night before and it's covered in crumbs, it's covered in dirt, it's covered in all sorts of stuff from having them over and now it needs to be cleaned. So I'm vacuuming this rug, but no matter how many times I'm vacuuming over the rug, none of the dirt, none of the chips, none of the crumbs, nothing is getting picked up and it looks just as bad as it did. Now let's say that Megan came over and she told me, hey, Andrew, you're doing a really bad job at vacuuming the rug. Could you just do better? And then she started to point out, you're missing this spot, you're missing this spot, you're missing this spot, and just kept repeating that over and over again. Here's my question, does that help me? No, it doesn't. I already know the problem, but for some reason, I I don't know how to fix it. That doesn't help me whatsoever. Now, that is a law-based sermon that you hear on a Sunday morning. All it does is point out everything that's wrong and say, can't you do better? Try harder, work, work harder to pick this up and clean this up in your life. And so many of our sermons stop at the law and pointing out what's wrong. And it never gives us hope and a solution for how to change. Now, let's go back to my rug illustration. And what if Megan came over and said, hey, Andrew, you did it again. The reason it's not picking up the crumbs and the dirt on the rug is because you have it on the wrong mode. You've got it on the side attachment mode so all the suction isn't going to the main part but it's going there and she clicks it over to the the floor mode and then I pick up all the stuff. That helps, right? Because she's not only pointing out what's not working, she's pointing out how to fix the problem. And today, this morning, I want all of us to understand not just the sin in our lives, but I want us to see that God has given us tools. God has given us the tools for how we can see change in our lives. Because if we don't have the right tools, change will always evade us. We need to tap into the right power source to begin seeing real change. And that brings us to our second principle. If we're going to triumph over temptation, then we have to believe that victory is possible. We have to believe that victory is possible. The path to spiritual victory begins with believing that the promises of scripture are true, not for everybody else, but for me. Believing that change truly is possible. Think of what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 6. Amazing truth. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. As new creations in Christ, we are no longer slaves to our sinful desires through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can now choose to say no to sin because Jesus purchased the power for that victory on the cross. You know, many times when we hear the gospel message, we equate the gospel with being freed from the penalty of sin in our lives. And that is true. That is a marvelous truth. However, it's an incomplete truth because Jesus didn't just die to set us free from the penalty of sin. He also died to set us free from the power of sin in our lives here and now. Through the gospel, God not only gives us forgiving grace, he also gives us transforming grace. We can believe that victory over sin is possible because scripture tells us God is faithful and he will give us the transforming grace that we need. This point is imperative. I know that it seems like sin is irresistible. I know that the allure of sin can feel like an undefeatable foe. Yet when we allow ourselves to think those ways, it's because we're focusing more on our inadequacy than on God's sufficiency. And on our own, we are inadequate. We know that I'm not strong enough. I'm not godly enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not smart enough. And on our own, we're not. But that's the reality. We're not on our own. God is faithful. And that's why we need a never-ending supply of God's transforming grace to sustain us. So this morning, if you've raised a white flag of surrender to a sin struggle in your life, take down that flag. Begin today to believe that victory is possible for you. Today's the day to realize that the gospel doesn't just endow you with forgiving grace, but it also empowers you with transforming grace. Today is the day to regain hope that your sin struggle does not define you. So after we believe that victory is possible, then we're able to access the spiritual tools that God gives us that are endowed with transforming grace to help us triumph over temptation. And that brings us to our third point. We need to execute God's escape plan. If we're going to triumph over temptation, we need to understand temptation. We need to believe that victory is possible, but then we need to execute God's escape plan. Look, look at that last part of verse 13. It says, but with the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This verse gives us a powerful promise. It says that we're, whenever we're tempted by God, God's going to give us the escape hatch so that we can be rescued from that temptation. However, notice the second part of that promise, the last part of that phrase. He says that we may be able to endure the temptation. We need to realize that oftentimes the way out of a temptation is through the temptation. The way out of a temptation is through the temptation. Now, I'll be honest with you this morning. That's the part of the verse that I don't always like. (laughs) I would prefer Christianity to be comfortable and I want my sanctification to be easy and painless, but it's not. A lot of us wish that God's way of escape would be like a firefighter kicking down the door and rescuing us. We place ourselves into the burning building of temptation and we're surrounded by it. And then we want to call 911 and say, Jesus, get me out of here. And he kicks down the door, throws this over his shoulder and runs out of the building with us, just kind of helplessly a, a limp noodle on his shoulder. That, that's what we want. We want Jesus to do all the work. Yet this verse reminds us that the way out of a temptation is walking through the temptation. God's escape plan is less analogous to an emergency evacuation and more analogous to a spotter helping someone working out in the gym. Just picture that for a moment. You're in the gym and you're working on your bench press and you have a a spotter, a workout partner who comes over and begins putting some weights on the bar. And if you're like me, it doesn't take a lot of weights on the bar before you realize that's getting to your upper threshold of what you can bench press. And as you're calculating those weights, you realize uh, that's that's about where I can, that's my max. I can't do much more than that. But your spotter says, don't worry. If you begin to falter, I'll help you through the rep. So you sit down, you pull the bar off, you bring it down and you realize this is way heavier than I remember. Maybe you're like me and during the last six months, your gym membership is just kind of you know stuck to the side and, and it's a lot heavier than you remembered. And when you get down and you start pushing up, you get to the plateau where no more vertical process is being made. And right then, you're afraid that the bar is gonna come crashing down but your spotter begins to slowly help you. Now the spotter doesn't grab it and lift all the weight off. No, the spotter gives you just enough help to allow you to continue to push through and finish the rep. And that's a great illustration of how sanctification works in our lives. God promises to be our perfect and faithful spotter. He'll never let the bar of temptation come crashing down on our chest, however, He doesn't excuse us from putting in the effort to complete the rep. He's faithful to give us exactly the amount of strength we need to be faithful to him. So now that we know the way out of temptation is through temptation, let me just close with three final words of application. These are three tools that God gives us for overcoming temptation. We need three things. We need a promise, prayer, and a person. Let me start with a promise. We need a promise. Most temptation stems from a lack of trust in one of God's promises. We need to realize at its root, temptation is tempting us to believe that God is not to be trusted and I need to take control of my life. I know better than God in this instance, what is best for me, what's best for my family, what's gonna be most satisfying, what's gonna bring the most fulfillment Temptation tells me I need to lean on my own understanding. And pro- to protect ourselves against those lies, we need to be regularly putting on the belt of truth. We have to be ready to respond to the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's promises. And the greatest example we see of that in the New Testament is Jesus when he's faced with temptation. Satan comes and throws every flaming dart he has at Jesus. And what does Jesus do every time? He combats him with a promise and the truth of God's word. So for our particular sin struggles, we need to memorize a promise that tells us why sin is not the right way, but it's just a shortcut that leads to devastation. We need to meditate on those promises. We need to hold them dear and preach the truth to ourselves in the moments of greatest temptation. So we need a promise. Second, we need prayer. We need prayer. You know, many times when we're feeling tempted, we try to use tools that are ultimately powerless because they're not powered by God's transforming grace. When we feel tempted, we try to distract ourselves or we try our hardest to not think about it or we just try to convince ourselves that we shouldn't give in. But rather than trying to rely on our own strength, scripture reminds us that we need to call out for God to give us strength. Consider what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 5, or 4 verses 15 and 16. He says, He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead we have one who has, in every respect, been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So then, let us draw near the throne of grace with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Our first response to temptation needs to be prayer. Through prayer, we access the power to resist temptation. Jesus invites us to draw near the throne of transforming grace. He will strengthen our resolve. He will give us a spirit-enabled distaste for sin. He will draw a promise to our mind. Sometimes Jesus will even take the temptation away. And best of all, he tells us that he is faithful to give us the mercy and grace that we need to stand strong in that moment. When this weight seems unbearable, call out to Jesus, your great spotter for help. And this passage reminds us that he will never ignore our call. Jesus stands beside us because he knows personally what temptation is like. He's been there, he's done that. Except Jesus has never given in to sin. He's always had victory. And now he promises to help us beat it too. So we need a promise, we need a prayer. Last thing we need is a partner. We need a partner. Remember what, Paul wrote in Galatians 6.1, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Whenever temptation has overtaken us, we need an accountability partner, another brother or sister in Christ who's trustworthy to come alongside to speak truth into our lives, to point our gaze back to Jesus, to pray on our behalf and to be there if we need to reach out to someone that we, when we're feel, feeling at our lowest. We need a partner. Sin thrives in secrecy and solitude. We can't do the Christian life alone. We need one another. Find a spiritual workout partner who can be fighting in your corner. You know, there's so much hope and truth embedded in this one small verse. And as we begin to strengthen our belief that lasting change is possible and we begin to execute God's workout plan more faithfully, we can turn the tide in our battle with temptation. However, we also need to recognize that this verse is not a command for perfection. We're never gonna be perfect this side of eternity. We're going to have shortcomings and failures along the way. And you know what? When we do, there's a promise for that as well. In 1 John 1, 9, John tells us that if we we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God promises that he'll give us a clean slate He'll wipe away our sin and he will equip us with a new measure of transforming grace so we can go out and have victory the next time. So this morning, if you have been overcome by temptation, believe that change is possible, confess that sin, get a new slate and begin integrating God's plan by having a promise, a prayer and a partner. Change is possible because God is faithful. His grace is sufficient. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for this powerful reminder. We're so grateful that we don't have to face temptation on our own, that you are faithful and that you will always give us the strength that we need if we just trust in you. So Father, if there are people out there today that have been feeling defeated and discouraged in their spiritual life, I pray that this is a wind and their sails. And as they look upon the person and work of Christ, they are confident that you have not just freed them from the penalty of sin, but you have freed us from the power of sin so that we can now live as sons and daughters for you. Give us this day a fresh infusion of your transforming grace to live for you, to love you, to worship you and bring you glory in all that we say and do. We pray In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.